Gladiators, how did it start? How did it change? And how were they sourced? Join me as I answer this and more, including fighting stats, on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi, and welcome. My name's Neil. So, gladiators. It's a huge topic, so it's only fair that I manage expectations and explain what I'll be covering in this episode. I'm going to start at the beginning with their introduction to Rome, and that also means considering where the idea for them may have come from. I'm then going to give an overview of how it all took off in and out of Rome, how their fights became a political thing, and how it all changed as the Roman Republic changed into the Roman Empire, and this takes me up to the beginning of the 2nd century AD. Then I'll take a look at where gladiators were sourced from before finishing up with some aspects to them that you might not be aware of. For example, their fighting stats. I'll also pick up on a couple of myths, including the whole thumbs up or thumbs down thing. In a future episode, I'll be examining the various types of gladiator from the commonly known to the niche, and I'll be looking into the gladiator just a bit more. It's a huge topic. Just getting the basics of how it all developed is quite a tale, as you'll hear. Just a couple of other points to consider. The first is that this obviously references violence. It almost goes without saying that gladiator fighting was a type of highly violent entertainment alongside beast hunts and executions. And this brings me to the second point. The beast hunts and executions were separate and won't be covered in this episode. Before I start, I need to give a shout out to Gladiator Doodles, who supplied the drawing of the gladiators for the cover art of this episode. Thank you so much. You can find her on Instagram, where she is gladiator underscore doodles, and on Twitter with the handle at amata106, or just search for Gladiator Doodles. This brings me on to the episode notes, which will include links to Gladiator Doodles, a transcription, Images, which feature a lot in the episode, by the way, and a reading list of the sources and works cited. The episode notes are on ancientblogger.com, and I'm Ancient Blogger on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. This podcast is also on Twitter as at HoundAncient, so please get in touch, it's great to hear from you. As an indie podcaster, reviews and ratings are so valuable, and they're always appreciated. And one last thing. As someone who listens to podcasts, thank you. I've got a backlog, and I dare say you do as well, so I appreciate you taking the time to listen and hope you enjoy this episode. So let's get started. When discussing gladiators in ancient Rome, the year of 264 BC is the agreed starting point. This year was in fact notable for something far more significant, at least in the short term. This was the year when Rome and Carthage clashed for the first time. It was the beginning of the First Punic War. And if you're thinking, does that mean Hannibal? No, Hannibal and the havoc he visited upon Rome wasn't for another 46 years or so in the Second Punic War. Rome at this point was far from the dominating force it came to be. If you went north from Rome, you'd find the northern Italian peninsula controlled by Celtic tribes. And to the south, there were still the Greek colonies. In short, Rome was a faction on the rise, but not the powerhouse that it would become. It was also the year Junius Brutus Pera died, or at least we think that's who it was, because at his Munera, the funeral games for a deceased male family member, 
his two sons exhibited three pairs of fighters. These weren't referred to as gladiators. The word used is bustuari, and this comes from bustum, which translates as a funeral pyre or close to it. This small detail is interesting on its own. It underlined the link between the fighters and the funeral games. And this is something which early on was where you'd find exactly this kind of activity. The purpose of the fighters was to appease the manes, the spirit of the deceased. But it's unclear if this meant the fighters fought to the death or simply the act of fighting and the possible bloodshed was enough. In fact, there's not a great deal of detail for this start. And how we come to know this day is a good example of how pins are stuck in the timeline. We have two main sources for the Bustiari in 264 BC. The most informative is Valerius Maximus. He wrote in the 1st century AD and recorded that this combat first happened at the funeral of Pera when the consuls Claudius and Fulvius served. He also gave a location, the Forum Boarium, or what was the cattle market of Rome. Livy is the second source, but it's a fleeting comment found in a summary of a lost book and echoes the account Valerius gave, just without the location. The first instance of what would become gladiatorial combat is far from what you might picture when someone mentions it. There wasn't a grand arena. In fact, it's probable that at best a temporary wooden structure would have served as seating for those who watched. As I mentioned, the gladiators fighting weren't even called gladiators, and we've got no real idea of what they look like. Even the day itself is, well, not exactly concrete. Though it's always worth remembering that this is often the case with Rome around this period. We don't have much in the way of contemporary records. But that said, this is what we have, and hence the pin in the timeline. A question you might have, and a reasonable one, is why? Funeral games weren't themselves a new idea. Probably the most famous of these in antiquity weren't even Roman. In the Iliad, there are the funeral games which Achilles threw for Patroclus. These included chariot racing, boxing, wrestling, even archery. And sat amidst them was an armed fight with Diomedes and Ajax, which was actually called off by those watching as things were getting a bit too dangerous. For both Livy and Valerius, the notable thing about the funeral games in 264 for Junius Brutus Pera was that it involved those paired combatants. So, who came up with the idea? The answer, wait for it, is a firm, we don't know. But it's a, we don't know, but. And there are two contending options, one to the north of Rome and the other to its south. For the northern option, we meet our old friends, the Etruscans. These are a people who have been seen as highly influential in the development of Rome. Indeed, one of their mythical kings hailed from an Etruscan city. When Lacoma arrived in Rome, he changed his name to Lucius Tarquinius Priscus, and the rest was history. Now, if you've listened to a few of my podcast episodes, you'll know that I'm never scared of mentioning anything which relates to a previous episode I've done. And this is indeed the case. I did an entire series on the Roman kings and Lucius Tarquinius Priscus gets his own episode. So feel free after this episode to go and find and have a listen. Though Priscus was a mythical figure, the later historians of Rome beat the Etruscan drum hard with him. The toga, curel chair, Circus Maximus, and even the cloaca maxima these were things they saw as being from Etruscans. The link to gladiators is sketchy, both literally and figuratively. A character called Nicholas of Damascus wrote in the late 1st century BC and noted that the Etruscans featured gladiatorial combat in their banquets. 
Allied to this are some frescoes on Etruscan tombs, which depicted fighting, possibly in the context of funerals. But it's not by any means an overwhelming or strong argument. There's certainly an association of funerals and sacrifice, but it falls short of really providing us with anything definitive or substantive. To the south of Rome, we have evidence in a similar format, namely frescoes found in tombs, and here we have something far more tangible. The Greek colony of Paestum lies some 300 kilometres to the south of Rome, and as I mentioned earlier, a Greek colony in southern Italy wasn't unusual. Many of these came under new owners as the tribes of southern Italy waxed and waned, and by the 4th century BC, a tribe called the Lucanians seemed to be in possession of Paestum. It's the frescoes on the tombs, which date to the 4th century BC and after, which give us what the Etruscans couldn't, a firm link between combat and funeral. In some of the frescoes, funeral games are in play. There's chariot racing and boxing. One particular fresco dated to 370 BC has a pair of fighters. Some detail has been lost to time, but we can make out what's going on. One fighter is reeling from a blow. It's possible that this is a spear to the head. He falls backwards and blood can be seen from elsewhere on his body. The other figure has his back to us. He seems to be armed with two weapons, whilst the other has a shield and a spear. Both are naked. Were this image found in Rome in the later period, would almost certainly consider this in the context of a gladiator fight. A later fresco shows another pair of men fighting, both sporting injuries with blood flowing. Unlike the Etruscan frescoes, we don't have to fill in as many gaps. We can argue that the context of funeral games is present here, as the other images around it show just that. So here we have funerals and a combat event. Added to this, we have some later writers who placed gladiatorial contests in this region. Livy wrote of a battle in 308 BC in which Rome fought against the Samnites. Here they were successful, and Rome's allies from Campania, the region in which Paestum is found, forced the Samnites to fight as gladiators at their feasts. This might be much of a retrospective technique, Livy inventing a sort of proto-gladiator myth and why it originated from the south, but it wouldn't be unusual for Rome to be influenced by a practice hailing from southern Italy. Take the whole Roman baths thing. That's argued as coming to Rome from Campania as well. And also, yes, I've done an episode on that. Just to recap then, we have a sound argument for a gladiator-style combat existing 110 years prior to the funeral games at Rome, where the Bustiari debuted. As you may know, I like to try and give some context to date, so here we go. That fresco I mentioned, which dated to around 370 BC, well, that was around the time that Plato wrote the Symposium, and when Hippocrates, the father of medicine, died. I want to return to Rome now, and look at how things changed in terms of the Minera, those funeral games, and the figures fighting within it. I know I've used bestiari, but to keep things simple, I'm going to use gladiator, which was certainly in use by the 2nd century BC, possibly earlier. And if you didn't know, that's because they take their name from gladius, which was the Roman word for sword. I'll start with where those funeral games first happened, the Forum Boarium, not an arena, not the Colosseum. I would say that there's a nice link between the Forum Borearum and a mythical fight to the death, but I'm talking about Rome, a place founded on the back of a brother killing his brother, and then the founder being very possibly hacked to pieces. Perhaps the interesting thing would have been to find somewhere in Rome which didn't 
have a link to violence. Anyway, one of the myths about Rome involved a giant Caucasus. He stole some cattle from Hercules, which, let's face it, never ends well. And it was apparently in the Forum Boarium, where Hercules killed the giant, and it was here that the oldest cult to Hercules was founded in Rome. The funeral games, the Munera of 264 BC, must have made an impact, because in 216 BC we hear of more involving gladiators. This time, three sons of Marcus Aemilius Lepidus up the ante with 22 pairs of fighters. For those of you with an eye for dates, this was also the same year that Rome was crushed by Hannibal at Cannae. It's curious that our first two dates link in with Carthage. Perhaps, perhaps it's just coincidence. There is definitely a link between Carthage and the next instance. In 206 BC, Scipio, the famous general, held games in honour of his father and uncle. Not that there had been much of a tradition of gladiatorial games, but here we have a couple of innovations. The first is the date. The deaths of his father and uncle had occurred some years earlier, possibly 211 BC. Scipio was on campaign in Spain at the time, and so perhaps it could be argued that it simply wasn't practical to have a funeral games when they died. However, these didn't occur at Rome. They were celebrated in New Carthage in southern Spain. Added to this, the gladiators weren't standard fare, again with a caveat that we don't know much of what the standard was. Livy wrote how they weren't the normal stock provided by trainers or slaves. These men fought willingly. And we'll come to this type of situation later, but here it seems as if Scipio was utilising the funeral games and the fighting therein to let local tribes settle some scores. As an example, there were two cousins who fought over a claim they had over a town, and they settled the issue through fighting each other there. Politically, this was a stroke of genius. Scipio was in foreign territory, and the tribes he had on side were only as loyal as they needed to be. In fact, Hannibal had the same issue when he'd been based in southern Spain. These games must have acted as an important valve, and set Scipio as a moderating entity who could facilitate issues which the rival tribes often had. Back in Rome, in 183 BC, Publius Licinius Crassus died, and in case you wondered, no, it, it wasn't that Crassus. Publius had been the Pontifex Maximus, the chief priest in Rome. Livy wrote that at his funeral there was a public distribution of meat and 120 gladiators for, presumably that's 60 pairs. The funeral games lasted for three days, so perhaps we have a slight development. It could have been that on each day 20 pairs fought, because otherwise, and forgive the pun, it's a bit of a case of overkill. Scipio aside, the funeral games in Rome were linked to elite individuals, men who had achieved high office, and so it's easy to assume that having gladiators at a funeral was something of a status indicator. Alongside this must have come the burden of expectation, which is very much the issue in our next example. In 174 BC, we hear more about gladiatorial contests and again from Livy. But here, we can read between the lines a little. Livy wrote that several small exhibitions of gladiators were given that year. And he seems to have made a snide comment about the big funeral of the year, that of Titus Flaminius. Titus had quite a career. He'd been consul and been a successful general in Greece against Macedonia. His death involved funeral games which lasted four days. Amongst the feast and stage plays, 74 gladiators fought over three days, but Livy wrote that only 74 gladiators fought. Was the expectation that there should have been more? What we can conclude from this was that gladiatorial fights were more common, and there may have been an expectation of bigger 
and better. I'll roll forward a few decades now and to the end of the 2nd century BC. It's here that gladiators or their trainers may have been involved in training the Roman army. We get this from a comment by Valerius Maximus, who wrote that Publius Rufus, a consul in 105 BC, instigated this so that the soldiers were more capable in both dodging and delivering blows. Whether this happened or not is debated, but it did fall into a wider change in the Roman army, the Marian reforms, where Rome went from an amateur army to a professional one. I should give a wider caveat that how the reforms happened and whether they occurred all under Marius is debated. But aside from this, it would have made sense to have gladiator trainers or gladiators doing exactly this. Roman soldiers were drilled in combat, but also in fighting as a unit. Gladiators weren't. They were one-on-one specialists. Perhaps there had been a gap in technique observed by those in charge. Gladiators, or their trainers, could certainly fill in as a particular skills coach might do in a modern sports team, offering specialist training to develop that soldier further. Moving to the 1st century BC, we meet a number of famous characters from Rome. This was the century of Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, Cicero, and towards the end of it, the change from republic to empire with Augustus as the first emperor. The gladiator and the spectacle of the gladiator was moulded by the political changes and demands of this period, but I'll start with the more tangible, and by that, I mean where the fighting took place. One of the biggest contrasts between how it all started and where it all ended up in terms of the gladiator is probably found in where you could watch it. At the outset, the fights took place in secondary venues, and by that, I mean that there wasn't a designated place. There was the Forum Boarium and the Scepter, a building in the field of Mars which was usually used for voting. And in a way, this is why it's difficult to know much about the fights at this time, because there wasn't a specific venue for them. In 52 BC, the first amphitheatre was seen at Rome. This was wooden and apparently formed of two theatres, which wheeled around to face inwards, creating an enclosed space. Wooden amphitheatres became the standard, and this was primarily because of the nature of the events. They were private gains for funerals, so there wasn't an inherent need for a permanent structure which everyone could use. That changed in 29 BC when Statilius Taurus built the first stone amphitheatre. It was destroyed in the Great Fire of Rome in AD 64, so we don't have it, but it's thought that it would have been located on the Campus Martius, the Field of Mars, which is where we think other fights took place as well. To find the earliest stone amphitheatre, we needed to travel to Pompeii, where one was built around 70 BC. In fact, the consensus is that it was to the south again where the amphitheatres were first found. Of course, when I talk about amphitheatres, one looms large, the Colosseum. This wasn't built until AD 80, some 344 years after those first funeral games I started with. If anything, the Colosseum was the pinnacle of the Roman manifestation of the gladiatorial experience, and I'll come to that later, but it's worth noting just how much time had elapsed between those first recorded fights and the famous building, which is often seen as the embodiment of the gladiator in Rome. The first century BC was one in which the political situation really heated up at Rome. Political careers were made even more cutthroat than they'd ever been, and the thing about gladiatorial events was that they were becoming increasingly popular. It was a very effective way for a politician to make a name for himself at Rome, so it's no surprise that Julius Caesar stepped forward and, well, you're here. 
In 65 BC, Caesar had started out on the political ladder, and a set of gladiatorial games were just the trick. Except, there was one big problem with them. As you'll recall, these were part of the funeral games, the Munera, for a dead male relative. So Caesar hosted some for his dead father, a father who had died some 20 years earlier. Old Julius. Caesar went further. In 45 BC, he had 320 pairs of gladiators fighting in games thrown for his dead daughter. The fact that she'd been dead for eight years, tragic though that was, gives you an idea of the rationale. But perhaps more controversial was that this were the first set of funeral games given for a female relative where gladiators fought. A gladiator was now a political asset. Spectacles involving them could be used to build a support base. And needless to say, this got many people a bit twitchy. And those in power looked to limit this political tactic. A law of 65 BC limited the number of gladiators which could be kept at Rome. And we're told by Suetonius that this resulted in fewer fights at Caesar's games. A few years prior, the Lex Calpurnia had prevented the use of seats at games, gladiatorial contests and theatrical performances for use in political canvassing. In 63 BC, Cicero's Lex Tullia prevented those from seeking office from giving games at all. It's important to note that these laws related largely to the games, which were separate at this point in time from the Munera, the funeral games where gladiators fought. But they were part of the same political toolkit, particularly for ambitious Roman politicians. And ruthless ambition was often the default setting for any Roman politician. There was also some concern over gladiators outside of the arena. In a letter to Quintus in 49 BC, Cicero raised the issue of a son, Julius Caesar, and his gladiatorial school in Capua, southern Italy. Cicero noted the concern over the 5,000 shields at the Ludus, the gladiatorial training school. The response was that these gladiators were broken up and distributed away from the Ludus. This may have been prescient, as it was this year that Caesar crossed the Rubicon and marched on Rome. Another way gladiators could be a threat was their use by politicians as bodyguards or part of their following. The likes of Milo and Clodius had their own entourage, which included gladiators, and these clashed. Famously, in 52 BC, it led to Clodius being killed. Of course, when you're on the topic of gladiators getting out of hand, I need to at least briefly mention the most famous instance of this, Spartacus. This will certainly require an episode of its own, but in 73 BC, around 70 gladiators broke out from a school in Capua. That's in the south of Italy. Over the next few years, Spartacus fought against Rome and etched his name in history, though we actually know very little about him. For example, the whole I'm Spartacus thing, that was pure Hollywood. Towards the end of the first century BC, Rome underwent a huge political change. Out of the smoking ruins of yet another civil war, Octavian took control in 31 BC. He later renamed himself Augustus and was Rome's first emperor. The reforms of Augustus were widespread and touched pretty much everything in Roman life, and gladiators were included. Where previously their fights had been kept within the Munera, the funeral games, now they were incorporated into Roman games full stop. Roman games had been a thing unto themselves since the early days of Rome. They might involve a theatre performance, chariot races, even beast hunts. In a way, folding the gladiatorial fights into them made sense. A pattern now formed, with beast hunts in the morning, executions in the arena at midday, 
and the gladiatorial fights in the afternoon. But this was Augustus after all, and therefore it was political as much as practical. Augustus must have seen how potent the gladiator fights were as a way of garnishing popularity. As part of the games, the emperor, and therefore the state, now controlled them. Outside of Rome, they could only occur through a magistrate, so it was always at the approval of the emperor that these took place. In the first century AD, the imperial grip on what was now an industry tightened further. The basic business model had been for the organiser of the games, which involved gladiators, to lease them from the ludus, the training school. This could get expensive. The better record a gladiator had, the pricier he was. And this itself links in with the idea that notable gladiators were less likely to be killed in the arena because it would incur the organiser of the games even more of a cost. By the time of Trajan in the early 2nd century AD, Rome had four large imperial gladiator schools. These allowed the emperor to avoid the costs of hiring in the talent, but it didn't totally exclude them. There was still the need to supplement and bring in gladiators from afar, and the regional fights still required the gladiators to be supplied from closer to home. The most famous imperial gladiator school, the Ludus Magnus, was built in the late 1st century under the emperor Domitian. This literally fed gladiators via an underground passage into an amphitheatre which had only recently opened in Rome. And of course, I'm talking about the Colosseum. The Colosseum took 10 years to build and opened in AD 80. Estimates of its capacity range from 50,000 to 80,000. The oval-shaped arena, the actual fighting space, measured 83 metres by 48 metres at its widest point. That's 272 by 157 feet. To get some perspective, it's large, but you wouldn't be able to fit a modern-day American football field in there, even take into account that the latter is a rectangle. This venue took over and gave Rome a definitive location for its games, but in a sense, Rome was lagging a bit. Pompeii had a permanent venue, a stone amphitheatre, which held 20,000 people back around 70 BC. We're talking 150 years prior to the Colosseum. Presumably, the smaller venues had sufficed in Rome up until that point. When considering gladiators, Pompeii is a great place because we can find reference to the gladiators on the walls in the form of adverts for games and even the results. Take Amelia Seller, who posted an advert about games involving 30 pairs fighting over five days. Not only did he add his name, but also that he did this at night, and perhaps that was the standard. You'd wake up one morning, go for a walk, and see what games were planned and advertised on the walls. Perhaps there was a particular area known for these adverts. It wasn't just games at Pompeii which were advertised. Graffiti for games elsewhere has been found. For example, for those at nearby Herculaneum. Whether in bold letters or just a scratch, a pattern can be observed, which gives the dates, the location, and the numbers of gladiators fighting, usually the persons staging the game also featured. But it wasn't just upcoming events which were drawn and written on the walls at Pompeii. It could also be the results of those games. Outside the city walls on a tomb by the Nisirian Gate, a set of drawings were found. These seem to record a set of games at nearby Nola, and they provide a wealth of information. The drawings comprise of three levels. At the top is the most detailed drawing. Gladiators fight and are flanked by musicians. An inscription reveals the sponsor of the games, Marcus Cominius Herres, and that they lasted four days and occurred at Nola. 
The drawing provides a lot of information about the pair of gladiators in the centre. Each is named. We have Hilarus and Crunus. Next to the names of Hilarus, the letters N-E-R probably relate to Nero, and that Hilarus was from the Imperial Gladiator School. Both have Roman numerals next to their names, and these are their fighting records. Hilarus has fought 14 times with 12 wins. Crunus, 7 times with 5 wins. Under the name of Hilarus, there is a V which indicated he won the fight. Crunus too has a letter, M, which showed that he lost, but he was reprieved. Below this are two more pairs of gladiators with stats and the result of their encounters. M. Attilius beat Hellerus, who was reprieved, and he did this on his debut. The letter T indicated Tiro, meaning it was Attilius's first fight. Hellerus also hit his record, 14 fights and 13 wins. So it's plausible that this either was the Hellerus in the top row and the stats were mixed up, or it was a different Hellerus. Below this, the final pair include M. Attilius again, this time facing off against L. Recius Felix. This time, Attilius has his one-for-one one stat next to his name, so presumably this was his second fight. He's victorious again, though the V next to his name is inconsequential, as his opponent kneels before him with his helmet on the floor. As with the previous fight, the loser was spared, and this was Recius's first defeat, as his record was 12 fights with 12 wins up until that point. These drawings are fascinating, because we get a rare glimpse of the fighters themselves. I wonder, for example, was the knocked-off helmet an embellishment by the artist who drew this, or had they been there, and this actually happened in the fight? These drawings supply a rare insight into the world of the gladiator, and not just that, they allow us to consider how they were received by the people who watched them. These images weren't created by some highly paid artist as a fresco or mosaic in a villa. This is much more of a personal response, a record which someone drew presumably to communicate to those passing by. If you're a tad confused by that, after all it was on the side of a tomb, well tombs were often found alongside roads, and this was outside the Nusirian gate, so we can suppose there was plenty of footfall. The interest in records gives us the idea that these were communicated to the public both before and after a fight, perhaps they were on the adverts that went up on the walls and, as with the tomb, recorded afterwards. And this makes more sense if you're generating interest in the fights or you just want to have people talking about them. There's something else that the drawings state, a point which I haven't made so far, namely that gladiators fought in pairs. It wasn't a mass brawl, and we can get more of an idea of how things went down in the arena from other pieces of evidence. A sarcophagus dating to the early 1st century AD featured a frieze with a set of games, including gladiators. The middle row shows not only gladiators, but what seems to be attendants and umpires, and later mosaics show this more clearly, with an umpire between or behind the two fighters. To use a modern analogy, this seems to move further away from the idea of a back-alley brawl and into something akin to a fight in the boxing ring. There was an umpire, and expectations, perhaps extending to one fighter stopping when it was clear that the other was beaten and then waiting to hear what would happen next to the defeated. Given the immense popularity of the fights by the 1st century AD, you might be thinking, well, where did all the gladiators come from? At a guess, you'll probably think of prisoners of war, and that was certainly true. But slaves could also be sold to a gladiator school, or sent to one by their master. Added to this were the criminals. And I should add a slightly macabre detail here, because a criminal could be sentenced to the games or to the gladiator school. The former was a straight-out death sentence, you were there to be publicly killed. 
but the latter might not have sounded much better, but there was a silver lining. A criminal could earn his freedom after three years of being a gladiator. The obvious caveat was that you had to live that long. There was another way gladiators were recruited, and this is possibly the most curious. Volunteers, otherwise known as auctority. Unlike the slaves or prisoners of war, these were free-born men who'd sign a contract and effectively hand themselves over to the gladiator school or trainer, the lanista, that they joined. They were owned now. Like other gladiators, they might die in the arena or even in training. At best, this feels like a situation born from desperation, and perhaps it was. Upon signing the contract, they were awarded a sum of money, and presumably they could earn more with successive victories. In the 1st century AD, Tastus wrote how the Emperor Vitellius issued a strong warning against the equestrians, that is to say the equestrian rank, from degrading themselves by fighting in the arena. Presumably, they did so through this route. One obvious motivating force here was probably debt. This is something Juvenal railed hard against in his 11th satire. Here, he lands a few jabs on the rich young men who have spent too much, often including their inheritance or their parents' wealth, and what followed was a trip to gladiator school to sign up to appease their creditors. Juvenal also mentioned the Tribune because a freeborn Roman needed the Tribune's approval before he could sign himself up to fight. The presumption is that after fulfilling the contract, an auctority could be free again, and the route to freedom was through the Rudis, the awarding of the wooden sword, which was something which must have been the goal of pretty much anyone in the gladiator school. But anyone who made it out wasn't likely to ever have the life of a citizen, gladiators were placed in a category of person known as infames. Anyone in this situation had no real legal rights, and this could only have resonated with those who previously had any, presumably the authority. In short, an ex-gladiator would find life tough, and some sold themselves back into a ludus, or gained employment there as trainers. The authority might have a slightly different experience with the ludus that they were training at, It's possible that they weren't required to live there, the caveat being they needed to train and fight and that was part of the contract. Life in the Ludus was basic. The gladiator school at Pompeii had enough room for two men per cell. They most likely slept on straw beds, which was actually not as linked to poverty as you might think it is today. Their diet mostly consisted of cereals. In fact, they were nicknamed the Barley Men by Pliny the Elder. And I've heard this pulled into conversations about vegetarianism and the like, and I suspect it's really got nothing to do with this. It was that barley was really cheap and meat was quite expensive. That said, this runs the risk of generalising a bit too much. Perhaps the more valued fighters in Eludus might get meat on occasion just as a treat. It's important to remember how gladiators were considered as assets, and like any asset, their care was linked to how much they were worth. This extended into the realm of healthcare. Eludus would most likely have some form of healthcare facility. In a large Eludus, this could be a surgery with a full-time specialist who would treat the types of wounds a gladiator might get. This brings me to a question often debated. How dangerous was it? Well, a reform Augustus included was prohibiting fights which were to the death, and you've heard me mention the examples of Hilarus and Rhesus, who both lost but weren't killed. Estimating your chances of survival as a gladiator is almost an impossible thing to do. There's so many factors to include. 
You might lose and not be killed, or lose and die of your injuries, even if spared, or win and die of your injuries. George Veals attempted a study on this for fights in the 1st century AD, and ended up with a number of 19 fatalities per 100 fights. What's argued is that in the following centuries, the chances of a losing gladiator being killed increased as the crowd became more demanding of the fighter who lost. It wasn't just enough to be plucky anymore. And on the subject of death, it's in this context that we get some insight. Tombstones of gladiators have been found, and these can tell us a lot. Take this one, for example. To the revered spirits of the dead, Glauco, born at Mutino, fought seven times, died in the eighth. He lived 23 years and five days. Aurelia set this up to her well-deserving husband, together with those who loved him. My advice to you is find your own star. Don't trust Nemesis. That is how I was deceived. Hail and farewell. Other tombstone inscriptions have the other fighters from the gladiator school contributing to the burial costs. It gives you a sense of camaraderie there. An issue with these is it's not always possible to know when they dated to. Presumably, those married had been freeborn and married before they became gladiators. The tombstones also indicate how many fights, and this is obviously a major variable and a paradox. The more fights a gladiator had, the more likely he was to die, but contrastingly, the more experience he got and the better he became at it. The context of relationships brings me to something of a trope, namely that gladiators had the noble ladies of Rome and elsewhere swooning. It's a sweeping generalisation informed by a couple of instances which need a bit more context. Take the infamous discovery of the skeleton of a noble woman in the gladiator school at Pompeii. This has often been used to support the idea that she had been caught having an affair, yet the cramped room she had been found in also had a number of other gladiators in it, and a dog. The more likely situation was that she had been caught out in the open space during the eruption and ran for cover, just like the dog. Then there are a couple of inscriptions about a certain Celadus, again from Pompeii. In two separate inscriptions, Celadus is both the sigh of the girls and the glory of the girls. Wow, you might think, Celadus was obviously popular. But then, as Mary Beard noted, you find out that the inscriptions came from inside the gladiator school there. So there's a possibility of wishful thinking, or perhaps a bit of ribbing going on. Of course, gladiators represented a taboo. Though they were admired for their courage in some quarters, in a social context they were no better than pimps, prostitutes, and, dare I say it, actors. Gladiators had sold their flesh, which meant in a particular niche they could be quite popular, but generally they weren't seen as anything to be admired. And when Juvenal mentions the wife of a senator running off with a gladiator, it's as much a possible reality as simply another gripe Juvenal has with the awful state of things. Remember, Juvenal spent much of his time bemoaning his life and how Rome was full of slaves richer than him. So this could just be another instance of the corruption of society as much as it was a genuine occurrence. To counter this, human history has shown us that taboos can cause attraction. So perhaps in some instances, an encounter with a gladiator occurred, whether it was a Roman woman or a Roman man. In fact, it would be surprising if this didn't happen. But what we lack is any real perspective from anyone involved. Up until now, I've spoken about gladiators as a bit of a monolithic bunch, but of course they weren't. They fought with various weapons and with an asset speciality. 
As I mentioned at the beginning, I'm going to do a minisode on the various types because it's certainly worth unwrapping and this will include female gladiators, which is also really fascinating. As we come to the end of the episode, it's time that I tackled the whole thumbs up, thumbs down thing. The answer is that we just don't know. It's Juvenal who referenced the use of a thumb but doesn't actually say what gesture either spared or doomed a beaten fighter. It's ironic that probably one of the most famous things about gladiators is something that we really can't confirm. And trust me when I say this is the kind of thing that you meet elsewhere in ancient history. Something just captures the imagination and you spend a lot of your time waggling your finger or thumb and trying to say to people, hang on a sec, we just don't know. And with that, I come to the end of the episode. I really hope you've enjoyed what I've been talking about and taken away a few things that you didn't know. Now, if you want to go and find those episode notes at ancientblogger.com, feel free to go and check them out. More importantly, look after yourself. Take some time away for it. It's a pretty hectic time of the year. Take the pressure off. So till next time, keep safe and stay well.